For the main topic of today's episode, I'd like to talk about strict time records. We all know that strict time records, without them, you cannot have a meaningful campaign. But what do they actually do? While I am driving to pick my wife up from her high-risk appointment, that's, uh, that's a lot of fun. But while I'm driving to pick her up from her appointment, I'm going to pontificate a little. first and most obvious place that strict time records come into focus is in your downtime. As we had talked about on some previous episodes, going back and forth in the call-ins, healing is a big thing in OSR games. Your fighter type is going to have the most hit points, but your healing rate is between 1 and D3 hit points, depending on your system, per day. So, especially as you gain levels, you're going to see a lot more... <clears throat> so as you gain levels, you're going to see longer and longer stretches of downtime while the fighter type heals up. Now. This doesn't take into consideration some element of player skill where you avoid combat and lose fewer hit points. This also doesn't take into account that you're going to have more access to healing as you get bigger. Namely, that fifth level fighter is going to have more hit points and therefore would, ta would take naturally longer to heal. However, he's going to have a sixth or seventh level cleric buddy next to him, and a sixth or seventh level cleric is going to be able to put him back on his feet a lot more readily in the downtime. However, as a general rule, I am in the car as always, so I don't have my books to reference. A higher level party is going to have downtime, same as a lower level party. If you're playing it right, this is going to disproportionately hit the melee types. Your fighters are going to probably have taken the most damage because they're the ones who got embroiled in the melee. Your thieves may have taken some di some damage also because they can they get in and fight. But you know you're trying to stay on the periphery. You're trying to get that backstab in, and moreover, you're trying to avoid having dice thrown at you because of that leather armor restriction. Magic users are going to hopefully have lost the least hit points because you know. If you're in melee as a magic user, it's uh, bad news. I don't play thieves very often, so I'm not sure what a thief would do in their downtime. I guess if you're using the training rules, it would help, because your thief levels very quickly by comparison to other classes, so if you're using training rules, you have an opportunity to get that training in. But training is lame. Subject for another podcast. You could be out rumor-mongering. You could be out... Uh, having your maps examined by sages. You could be out experimenting with magic items to see what they are. So you have a little bit of stuff to do, but who among my listeners plays thieves preferentially? What did your thief do during the downtime? Legitimate question. 
Speaking then to Magic users, the Magic user, he's going to have the most pronounced downtime occupation. Because the Magic user, even if you take damage with your D4 hit die, you're going to have the least amount of recovery time. You're going to be able to spend those weeks either making consumable magic items or doing spell research. We've talked about consumable magic items in previous episodes where we have the scrolls that make you feel more magical, that improve your versatility, but we haven't really talked about spell research. Downtime is the time that you spend scribing the scrolls that you found into your spellbook. Downtime is the time that you spend coming up with new spells and negotiating with your dungeon master as to how long it's going to take you to figure that one out and what level it's going to be and how it all the particulars are. Now, are you going to be able to do all of this in that week where the fighter is regaining his hit points? Eh, maybe not. But the point is, the magic user has a bunch of time-consuming activities, a bunch of gold-consuming activities, which make perfect filler for the time spent outside of the dungeon when other characters have been on their mind. Second, less a thing to do and more a byproduct of, this was brought up in a Discord conversation. I will not name the Discordee because they haven't given me permission to do so, but... Editor Taylor chiming in. He also didn't bother to ask. Didn't bother to ask. You know who you are. Kudos. A brilliant point that came up during that conversation is strict time records encourages troop thinking. If, for example, my magic user is brewing a second level potion, that's going to take two weeks. On the assumption that one day in real life is one day in game time, that means that I'm going to have to miss next week's session. Even more if you're, pay if you're playing multiple times a week. Alternatively, if you're not day-by-day -day tracking, and you're tracking all in-game, as most of the games that I've played in traditional campaigns worked, you're going to miss the next couple adventures while the party spends three or four days to get somewhere, uh, some time in the dungeon, and then three or four days to get back. So, on the simplest assumption, uh, doubling back, we have a magic user brewing a level 2 potion, or scribing a level 2 scroll, takes him two weeks to do it, and we play weekly, who am I going to play in the interim? Easy. Roll up an alt. One characteristic of the old-school mindset, you don't necessarily have one player, one character. And that way, you can have your other characters doing something in the background. For fighters, maybe healing. For thieves, maybe rumor-mongering, like I mentioned before. Or some other crazy stuff that I'm sure, I'm sure that my wonderful listeners will call in and tell me all about. Um, hint, hint. Or your magic user is making stuff. So, those characters are in the background doing their thing while you bring your other characters forward. It dawns on me, hearkening back to those abysmal bad idea training rules that I hate so much, how much of those training rules were based on trying to keep a consistent level. 
when I was in college and we ran our uh, league, it was an open table style format. We had uh, oh, a little bit of traffic here. Oh, geez. And we are safe. When I was in college and we ran our open table style league, we ran into a problem that the same silly players kept dying and then the same cautious players kept living. So there started to be a gap between the players' characters. There started to be a gap between the player character levels. So you, one table would always be level one to three, and then the next table would be four to six or maybe even eight. When you are using the training rules, if you want to get to level eight, you have to spend a significant amount of time training. I, what was it, eight weeks? I'm not sure. But if I'm spending eight weeks training, that means I'm going to be playing an alt for, with weekly play, two solid months of gaming. If I play that alt for two solid months, he's, he's going to have a good chance to catch up. So, even if there are, even if there are, pulling into a parking spot. Yep, we are at the parking spot and I'm going to have to pick up my wife now. But even if you have players who keep dying and routinely live in the low level ranges, your high level players are going to be spending a lot of time in the low level ranges while they have their main character training or healing or doing spell research if you know you don't use stupid rules and so you don't run into the same problem you don't have to worry about well am i going to throw zombies or am i going to throw vampires troop play also solves several problems that exist in more modern vintage for example if we all roll our characters and nobody has a high int then that implies that we're going to have to have a dumb magic user. Magic users have a very long XP track by comparison to other classes, and the XP bonus that they get from having a high int is very, very beneficial to them. Some house rulers will, and I think some additions, will give them bonus spells too if they have a high int. Troop play, that is having multiple characters and rolling 3d6 down the line, you are equally likely to have a good one stat as you are a good different stat. It's just in order as to where the dice fall. So if I roll up three, four characters, I'm likely to have three or four different good stats. So I may have a fighter and a magic user and a cleric. I may have two thieves and a dwarf. Who knows? But the point is that when I have a troop, when I have multiple characters that are associated with me, when the party is coming together and figuring out how they're going to take out that next objective, there's a choice as to who to bring. Fighting a bunch of undead? I'll bring my cleric along. Going through mazes or labyrinths that have puzzles and traps along the way? I'll bring that thief. So, again, hearkening back to some calls and conversations that we've had, if I don't have X in my party, troop play solves the problem by allowing one of the players to bring in an alt, a character in which they are invested, to fill the role. Something that does not happen if you stick to a one-player, one-character setup. Now, let's circle back to one of the core experiences of the game. 
the dungeon. Strict time records in the dungeon equate to a couple primary functions. First and foremost, enabling the referee to run the game. Well, not enabling. Games can be run without procedures. They're not OSR games, but they are games. But the procedures promote the certain experience, empower the referee to create that experience. Think about a while back I had written an article talking about splitting the party and how using the strict time records and using the prescribed procedures in the basic expert set, it's really not that hard to create a split party scenario. Without those procedures, then you're left improvising. A talented or experienced ref will be able to do it, but with the procedures in place, a novice can follow the pattern, gain that experience, and produce a good result. Aforementioned procedures rely on timekeeping. I, as a ref, don't know when your torch goes out unless I'm keeping a record of turns spent. I, as a ref, don't know when to roll a wandering monster unless I'm keeping the time. As such, in an old-school context, the procedures of the game, the manner by which novice referees are able to generate a good experience and by which experienced referees are able to create an exquisite experience, are reliant on keeping track of time. Torches are obvious. That's resource management, and people have talked about that enough on their own podcasts and blogs. But think about wandering monsters. Wandering monsters introduce a second layer of... A race car? Oh my, they're going super fast! Wandering monsters, they introduce a second layer of complexity, of decision-making, of risk. Do I spend the next turn searching the space and risk getting attacked by a monster? Or do I ski-daddle out with the loot that I have? Similarly, not all wandering monsters are bad things. In newer editions and newer games, there's an assumption of combat, especially of players coming to the hobby from a video game background. Hey look guys, a garbage truck! Where was I? Oh, in old school games, especially if you're using alignment languages, there's an assumption that a lot of the time you'll be able to communicate with denizens underground. You're not necessarily going to have to fight a fire truck! You're not necessarily going to fight when you encounter something. You can talk to them, they may give you instructions, they may give you directions, or you may just pass by without harm. In conclusion, the inclusion of strict timekeeping when exploring a dungeon not only provides a mechanism for resource management, as is commonly talked about, but also it provides a framework, or it buoys the framework around which the referee is able to create the experience, and also it serves as a tensioner. It introduces strain and forces decisions that the party, without a sense of ticking clock, would not be forced to make. We've talked about timekeeping in the dungeon. How about timekeeping in the wilderness? That hex-driven 
unclaimed space where our retinue of loyal hirelings, depending on charisma and compensation, are helping us to carve our names and domains into the wild. It's First, there's the obvious, how many rations do we have versus how many bodies? And then, how many arrows do we have versus how many battles have we fought? Well, that can be interesting. Say we're running low on rations, we need to spend some time foraging, and that may cost us some of the arrows. That kind of question, and the bookkeeping part, is akin to tracking torches in the dungeon. That is, it's a part of the game, it's something I enjoy doing, but it's something that is covered to death by other podcasts, other conversations, and other blogs. So instead, I'm going to look past it a little bit and think about troops. That is, troop play. If I have three potential bases to start my adventure, and one of them is a week's travel away, I can't necessarily hire the same specialist on two consecutive missions unless I accompany them between those two places. If I have a stable of characters that are spread out between those places, that's going to influence who I bring to what adventure, and the kind of objectives that, out of a given starting point, we're going to be able to go after, hearkening back to our fleshing out the party conversation. In a one day equals one day scenario, this kind of falls apart a little bit, because it seems silly that I could play hex crawling over the next town, and that would take a session, uh, well, Honestly, with random encounters the way they are in the wild, you're going to spend a lot less time spending those seven days than you would sacrificing the seven days to get to where you're going. And I think that having multiple potential start points in a hex crawl that I ran, I would run it. You can start in any of the places, but you pay a different upkeep. Uh, every turn depending on cost of living, so to speak, and I figured that would cover, say, having gotten on a caravan or a ship to get to where you needed to go. My open table experience was very adventure-driven. There was not a lot of town, so to speak, and my traditional experience has rarely resulted in a split party on the wider scale. I have not run a West Marches type game, so take that advice with a grain of salt. But the point is, if you enforce traveling between regions, timekeeping becomes important. How long will it take for the supplies departing from point A to get to Kingdom B, and can I intercept them? Alternatively, when you have a besieging force in Kingdom C, and we're sending reinforcements from A and B, will they arrive at the same time? You can do that narratively and just make it up, but that sacrifices some of the consistency. Strict time records and consistency in overland travel give advantages to a party who travels smart. It forces them, or not forces, but enables them to make decisions and puts them in a position to impact the wider world as more mid level appropriate challenges surface. I realize that I'm rambling a little bit. Um, I got a text while I was recording saying that I needed to come home, so I'm kind of speeding a little bit, Uh, but I will get home, I will drive safely, and I'll ruminate. If 
I listen back and what I'm talking about makes less sense than what I'm thinking. I'm going to listen back, then I may re-record this segment. Otherwise, you're stuck with what you got. Lastly, we come to the end game of the original OSR experience, the domain. How does strict time records influence the domain game? By this point, you've likely stopped managing the individual rations and arrows that we talked about in wilderness exploration, and you've hired a quartermaster to do that. We've kind of abstracted it away into a monthly cost and we're playing war games. However, in the DMG or DM sections for domain play, there is ample information regarding strongholds. How much they cost, who you need to employ in order to build them, and how long they take to build. The latter part of this experience, the how long do they take to build, is the first point at which strict time records become interesting. In an environment where you have potential player versus player conflict, there are stories about that from some of the 70s games. I won't delve too deeply, but if you Google them, they're not hard to find. But the point is, you would have two potential dueling lords. You both want to get a particular resource into your domain, so you go to war with the other player, and you can put your army against theirs. Alternatively, you can have non-player characters, say that Lich King in the mountains, you can lead your army, which fights his army, while your initial party either teleports or has flying mounts or some other equally epic thing and does battle with the Lich. In either of those contexts, you can be ambushed while your stronghold is under construction. Are you using the wandering monster check? Or in this case, it's, I think it's a daily and I forget what it's called, but it's the same principle. You may have a group of traveling creatures assail your stronghold while it's under construction. So do you have the resources to combat that? Is that something that you as the player will have to deal with? And how will you deal with it as a party? This time constraint, this brings in another element of the domain game. Can you repurpose strongholds? You can find strongholds, towers, with dungeons attached. Is it more feasible to pacify that dungeon, to take over that ruin, and to repair it, taking less time and less resources than it would be to do it wholesale. That may put you in a position where you're not necessarily exactly where you want to be. You don't necessarily have the exact choke point that you want, but you're avoiding those encounters and you're empowering your party to move along with its objectives after the domain has been secured. Who knows, maybe that's where you're storing all of your resources and housing all of your dudes while the main stronghold is being constructed. 
recording a couple days later, as I had been thinking about the domain game, I don't know if I stressed this, but an interesting thing to think about when it comes to how games were played is the idea of a shared world. In modern vintage, sandboxes and open tables are somewhat common. They're somewhat vogue, especially with the advent of online gaming, making it very easy to get together and figure things out. But this is reminiscent to how games were played. There are some great stories, and I would encourage you to check them out, uh, regarding player versus player kind of stronghold stuff, where you have... Are you okay, Micah? Are you stomping your baby feet? He's stomping his baby feet. But you have some great stories about some a group of adventurers coming together and assaulting a keep only to have the referee call the player whose keep it was to organize the defense. And that is super cool. Now, the only way that is possible is straight time records. It was a yellow excavator. Anyway, the I believe I had started to talk about this. He knew he had talked about this. He just didn't remember what he said. But I wanted to re-stress about how cool it is or what the kind of possibilities are when you have multiple player objectives moving in tandem. So, strict time records allow for the orchestration of multiple player-driven objectives through a shared milieu. Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. So, with that, I have hit just about 20 minutes of content on the Anchor app. Uh, I tried to re-listen to the Wilderness and Domain bit, uh, but Anchor is telling me it cannot access them at this time. So, whatever weird ramblings I had yesterday while driving back and forth from the grocery store, that's what you're going to get. After all said and done, that should reduce it down to, to a reasonable amount and leave us some time at the end for call-ins. Thank you everybody for listening and tell me about your game. How does keeping track of time influence your game? Delve on everybody. Yo Taylor, so yeah man, that was an awesome episode. I I hope that you managed to squeeze in some time because I thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy your content. I love the way you put episodes together. I love your cadence. Uh, you're, you know, I've are also started downloading some of your adventures that you've written a couple of them now, and they both seem awesome, dude. So I know how busy you are. I don't know. I can imagine how busy you are, but I just, I hope you manage to keep going, dude. Cause you're awesome at what you do. Uh, as far as using like real world religions in my games, I tend to use pre-Christian religions, because not that many people know that much about them. And plus, what we do know about them are 
pretty vague. So there's a lot of room to play in there. Uh, and that usually works pretty good for me. And there's there's just a lot of them. And yeah, dude, BMI, that breaks down no matter what height you are. BMI is garbage. Peace out. Thank you, Joe, for the call in and for the encouragement. That uh, That does better for me than you may realize. In terms of the busy, it's pretty intense. <laughs> it's uh, an 18-hour-a-day responsibility, but this too shall pass. We just have to make it through to the other side. That's awesome to hear that the content I'm putting out is jiving for you. I'm excited uh, to hear that, and I've got another adventure I'm slowly working on. Editor's note. That adventure, which would become the Vault of the Stag, is available on the blog. I was able to put that out last week. Still owe you guys a PDF, though. I've got the map done, and I've got the key keyed. I just got to get everything together, I guess. But uh, either way, awesome to hear from you. Thank you for calling in, and never you worry. I'm not giving up the ship, but uh, I just may be a little slower for the next uh, next couple months getting stuff out. Again, I think I've said this three times, but I do appreciate your call. I appreciate the encouragement. and uh, Of course, peace out, my man. Peace out. Hello, this is Logar the Barbarian from the Wobblies and Wizards podcast, and I was listening to your podcast today. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about something real quick that I noticed noticed you mentioned was was how hard it is right now for you to find time for game and that's one thing i 100 percent understand it seems that when my kids were young they was very very hard for me to find time for game they needed me for everything so i understand that now that they're teenagers now that they're teenagers <clears throat> we've had a uh We've had a much easier time because they don't want anything to do with me. They don't want me around at all. So that is coming. They aren't going to need you much longer. And it comes by much faster than you'd realize. So hopefully you can get some game in and uh, enjoy the time you have with them. That settles it. Ten more years. They're three now. So ten more years and I can run my awesome West Marches game that I've been planning for so long. <laughs> I tease a little bit. I am appreciative of the position I'm in. Uh, I, I love my boys and I love being a part of their lives and I'm very grateful that I've been almost forced to work from home for the past, honestly, a couple years. That was one of the strange parts of 2020 and 2021. I am essential, so it was business as usual in my job, but because I can work from home, the company had me work from home to try to help slow the spread. And I was able to be proximitous to the first couple years of my boy, well, not the literal first, but the first couple years of my boy's lives, I was able to be a part of it like my father was not able to be a part of mine. I do remember coming at this from the other perspective, that is, being a child with a father, that uh, there was a point at which I did not want anything to do with my dad either. But uh, that only lasted until I was uh, mid-twenties, the point, the point where I had a self-sustaining job. Having a job that uh, meant I was totally independent, that was probably the turning point uh, in my relationship with my dad. <laughs> but the uh, point is, I do very much appreciate the insight. I appreciate the call, 
and I appreciate the encouragement. I will be happy with what I have now. I will power through what I have coming, and hopefully when uh, they get a little older, past the teenage years, they will, as I hope yours will likewise, look back and, as Mark Twain said, be amazed at how much the old man has learned in the last 10 years. Keep on gaming and keep on recording. I appreciate what you and your co-hosts do and your amazing cadence. There is no way I could keep up with a daily podcast. So interesting take on religion. I don't know if any D&D type games, well, maybe there is one D&D type game that puts like a monolithic religion, but I mean, I think it only works. Maybe it works because I haven't played a lot, but Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which I think is based on AD&D, right? It's set in the real world during the 30 years war and there is Catholicism and a burgeoning uh, reformation movement in the Germany area and in England, right? Well, England has done undergone had having been undergone information since the earlier uh, or yeah, late 16th century, right? I guess around it's kind of, I think it's contemporary, right? It seems contemporary, Henry VIII and all that. But uh, I don't know. I, I've not played Lamentations, so I wonder if that works. Uh, any game maybe set in the real world might work. Um, to do that, is it necessary? I don't know. But it's a very good question. Regarding Lamentations and whether or not it is reverent to the source material, uh, I'm just going to read from RPGNet <clears throat> in a review of the supplement Eldritch Cock. A semi-hidden insert includes the book's only magical item, the Rod of Lordly Power. This is literally the d*** of Jesus Christ and has abilities that can be traced to Jesus' teachings, miracles, and current church practices. In the vein of Lamentations of the Flame Princess, these are accompanied by d related effects, like ejecting a cream. If grabbing Christ's d*** is not enough, one can also eat it in order to sustain himself. So, suffice to say, I don't believe that Lamentations of the Flame Princess is in the camp of, uh, we'll say, respectful reverence. That said, the Lamentations core system, uh, I have the art-free PDF on my machine, downloading it because I was curious about the specialist, but the core system is very strong. I like the core system of Lamentations. It's got intense niche protection. Uh, it's well suited for exploration and investigation specifically. It's a good system for murder mystery type, and they have several supplements to support it. The specialist I referenced earlier, the single most common change that I've seen to thieves in home games is people adopting the specialist in lieu of the thief skills. Interestingly, in the Lamentations 2E that was hinted at, but to my knowledge never released, the second edition was going to remove clerics entirely, because per James Raggy's commentary, clerics did not suit his style of play. With that in mind, Lamentations is a good core system. It's a solid base if you want to run a campaign in it, but the official and unofficial supplementary material that have been produced and published for it, probably not the best place to start if you're going to be playing at Bible study. And I guess 7th C 
which is not really on Earth, but has like a lot of Earth-like political entities, has, um, you know, like a Italian-type states, which is nominally Catholic, French-type state, which is Catholic-ish, and then, you know, Reformation movements. I think it also takes place in Europe during the Thirty Years' War or Europe-like. And then you have Eastern Orthodox, and then with the addition of... Um, of some of the other books that they've published, you even have um, still polytheistic traditions in Africa and the New World, and you have um, like a Islam-type religion in the Fertile Crescent orthologue. So I don't know. Uh, does it work? Is it sensitive? Um, I guess you could tell, tell a lot of cool stories with a mature audience, but um, maybe people aren't into that as much. Having a mature player base is definitely a big deal. That can make or break a game. Speaking to 7C, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, I haven't read through it. Uh, I've heard about it, but I haven't read through it. And thinking about it the way you mentioned it, it's not Catholics. It's not Catholics, if that makes sense. So uh, we're not dealing with Catholicism or Islam or uh, Eastern Orthodox. We're dealing with analogs. And I think that is where uh, Jason was coming from. And I think that's what I mentioned. It's not a representation of the real world. It is taking something from the real world and drawing inspiration from it, which I am a big, big, big proponent of. Real world is stranger than fiction, and the real world is more diverse than any one imagination can be. That gives us something to check out. Maybe I'll uh, look into that. That'd be a fun unboxing. Another ancient product I could review. <laughs> but we'll see where we go. Thank you for calling in, my man. And with that, gentlemen, we have another one on the books. I want to thank you, listeners, for listening. I want to thank my callers, uh, Joe of Hindsightless, Logar of the Wobblies and Wizards, and Carl of the Geomologist Presents. It's awesome to hear from folks. I really love the conversational aspect of podcasting. Thank you for calling in and making that happen for me. Also, I want to thank John over at Tale of the Manticore for cross-pollinating. Likewise, I appreciate the folks who have called in who are still pending. I will get you in on a future episode. And I appreciate my theme music, which is, of course, Cold Coffee, or at least adapted from Cold Coffee by Michael Ramirez, as accessed via Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit license. I know I said I'd have a proper legal blurb, this time, last time, but I figure so long as I get the word in, that's the least, uh, the least important thing to you, the listener. That is, format of the attributions. Again, thank you for listening, thank you for calling, and between now and when I talk to you next time, delve on.